0: Ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald.
1: Good afternoon, this is Chickie Fitzgerald with The Game Changer Network and we are going to be talking today with David Livermore. And he is the author of a book called Driven by Difference, How Great Companies Fuel Innovation Through Diversity. David, welcome.
0: Thank you so much, Chickie.
1: Well, it is exciting to have you uh, on board. And and I've got your book sitting here, and I absolutely love the cover of your book. And it it is a – I'm – guessing a light switch it's a switch of some kind anyway that has all these different colors coming into it Mm. uh and actually uh, out of the bottom is is this single gray cord or maybe it's the other way around that it's the single gray cord coming in and the colors going out uh why don't you tell us a little bit before we get into the book tell us a little bit about you david
0: Yeah, thank you. So I lead the Cultural Intelligence Center. We're based in the U.S., but we partner with researchers and companies around the globe. And I'm originally from the East Coast, um, New York, greater New York area, and currently live in the state of Michigan. And so while oftentimes we're talking about our work in terms of how it relates to bridging international differences, sometimes I feel like one of the biggest adjustments I had to make was moving from the East Coast to the so-called Midwest. <laughs> um, but at any rate, that's, that's where I live with my family. My wife and I have two teenagers, one who's in her first year of university and one who's finishing up high school. And my professional career has been spent for the last 20-some years working in a variety of roles uh, in leadership development positions with companies or inside universities. And then about six years ago, we specifically set up the Cultural Intelligence Center where we work with universities, businesses, governments, executives around the world to help them assess and improve the ways that they work across cultures. So this most recent book that you mentioned is just the newest iteration of what we've been learning as we've been interacting with individuals, and as importantly, what we've seen through some of our research on this topic. So, well, yeah, very that's, interesting. That's a bit about who I am.
1: Well, I. I uh, also have two teenagers. I've got mm. a daughter who just graduated from high school and she is heading off to the University of Warsaw in Poland in oh, the fall. Wow. Hopefully we're we're still waiting for final uh, as
0: that will be the full time place she will be or as part of a study? Yes, it's
1: a five year program, wow. uh, a five year masters in psychology. Hmm. Excellent. Yeah, well, excellent. Well, Except for Poland is a long way away from Tampa, <laughs> Florida, I've gotta tell you. And, you know, again, the whole the whole topic of, of cultural differences and language differences, uh, you know, she is going to be, you know, smacked in the face with that on October first when she starts the program. And uh we actually went on, on a couple of mission trips with our local church here in Tampa, uh two Southern, actually southwestern Poland, and she fell in love with it mm. and fell in love with the people. And I've worked in international business most of my entire career. Now I've done less of it uh, since I've been out on my own, but my corporate jobs were all in, in companies that had a presence in 200-plus countries.
0: Mm. Well, it's interesting because in addition to both having teenagers, you know, some of – the way that I got involved in this work originally was researching itinerant travelers and to what really? degree can one engage in the culture and included in that were individuals who go on religious, religious short term mission experiences as well oh, as itinerant business travelers and
1: Yeah and and I have been in the travel industry uh, almost huh. 40 years now mm. so uh the last 20 have been in consulting and then the first 20 were, were in, in these large corporations that had a presence. Uh, we were one of the first industries to do electronic commerce long before the Internet, you know, mm. back in 1978. And so I've become somewhat of an expert in, in that arena. But um, so, so you, you have written multiple books. So why don't we talk a little bit about where you started as an author and why you started writing this stuff down?
0: Yeah, so actually my my first piece was specifically looking at the short-term experiences of religious volunteers and uh was I was seeing a big contrast in the way that the locals who received those short-term travelers talked about the experiences as compared to what I heard from those individuals themselves when they were reporting to their family members or in churches. Um, but mm. to get to your second point of why did I write it down, I didn't want to be that, that guy, that academic, that just talked about problems and what was wrong and didn't offer any solutions, nor did I – really find myself interested in talking in a lot of academic ease. So really right. it was, how do we talk about this in real life solutions to, I didn't find that the people who were traveling were intentionally trying to go off as ugly Americans in that. There right. were a lot of unintentional behaviors. So that's where I began in that journey. How do you just help people think about ways to do this better?
1: Well, course and of now course. I have to tell you an even uh, yeah. more pertinent story Because my grandparents, actually both sets of grandparents, but I'll tell you my dad's parents' story first, in 1913, they went to Brazil as missionaries uh, with the Presbyterian Church. On
0: a boat, I
1: would guess. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm quite certain. And uh, my dad and, and all of his siblings were born in Brazil and grew up there until he came back to the U.S. for college. And my mother, her parents uh, went to North Korea uh, wow. as Methodist missionaries. And so she grew up in North Korea, and they had a couple of periods where they were evacuated because of what was going on with China. And you know, she came back to the U.S. to go to school, which, by the way, that was the cultural um, experience because she had grown up. In you know living in a compound in, in Korea, and then went back, and then you know she came back to go to college, went to college camp, mar- you know met my dad, and then they got married, and they went to Portugal as missionaries, and both of my sisters were born there. So huh. um, I kind of missed this whole thing that you did, and and uh, actually I'm looking at some of your older books, and I've got uh, the pastor of the youth ministry at our old church. I think he, uh, he just took on global responsibility for the Foursquare Church Mm. of uh, helping them make their youth ministry globally more relevant. So Mm. Mm. we were just meant to to meet, (laughs) absolutely.
0: For sure. Well, and the, the iteration from that was as I was interacting with people about some of those research findings, more and more people in the workplace were going, hang on. This is the same thing that goes on for us exactly. when I
1: fly
0: into my office in Beijing or whatever it might be. So
1: right.
0: I, I began to, to delve more into that world. And now, you know, we still go back and forth between the nonprofit charitable world and the for-profit. Right, right. But, um,
1: so the book, yeah. The Cultural Intelligence Difference, was really your first foray into twisting the the message, or twisting the audience, rather, yep. from the non nonprofit profit uh, religious uh, world to the corporate world. And, um, you know, my my last job in corporate America, well, in, when I was working for Sabre, which was part of American Airlines, is I was managing director of Latin America. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was focusing a lot of attention on, on working with that part of the world, which, of course, I had this affinity for because of my dad uh, growing up in Brazil. So, And then, then you wrote a book called Expand Your Borders. hmm and another leading with cultural intelligence. And and now this driven by difference. So so talk to me a little bit about the evolution um, in in the books that you've written about this this topic.
0: Yeah. So the, the a couple of those that you referenced, the cultural intelligence difference, leading by cultural leading with cultural intelligence those really capture the essence of our research around what actually is cultural intelligence. Is this just a buzzword for cultural competence? And without getting into too much of the technical detail, we've done research now with about 55,000 global professionals across 98 countries and found Mm. that there are some consistent skills that those who could move in and out of different cultures do well. So those books, kind of the the iteration from the more faith-based context into more corporate were, how does this actually apply to leading effectively and well? And that leads to the book that we're talking about today, I, I actually ironically, given the nature of the work and culture, really hadn't spent a whole lot of time in the diversity space. But just as people were saying in response to the short-term mission work, doesn't this apply to business? As I was talking about global engagement, people were saying, well, but isn't this also true about people from the South and people in the North or African-American oh, without and a doubt. Hispanics,
1: right? Without so, a doubt. And the the last Uh, job that I had before I left corporate life, I worked for a company that was owned by Delta Northwest and TWA. Mm. And I can tell you that just the cultural (laughs) difference between the people at Delta Airlines of, you know, the person on the reservation's uh, phone line saying, you know, how's your mama, (laughs) you know, versus the Northwest Airlines people who were Minneapolis and all buttoned up you know sure. a company run by finance professionals right uh that was my first taste of that kind of diversity Interesting. but you know i was just going to interject and, and then i'll let you continue your thought about that is diversity as a word it evokes something completely different than this this whole broad cultural mm-hmm approach. Mm -hmm. So, um, and again, I interrupted you and I apologize. So finish talking to me uh, about this whole topic of diversity, which hadn't really occurred to you in a way other than just the differences between countries and regions.
0: Yeah, well, what ended up happening is I was yeah, you know, I'm very grateful for this, but I was getting invited more and more to speak at conferences where they said, "Talk about how cultural intelligence connects with diversity efforts." And just at a at a very anecdotal level, I was hearing a number of presenters, um, also at those conferences, say, "Diversity leads to innovation. You get more diverse people on a team, and it it automatically, you know, you've got more." And I'm sitting there going. Okay, well, it could, but a lot of the teams <laughs> I've observed, it's quite the opposite. You know, and I, I sometimes uh, say to people, if you've ever been married to someone who has a different opinion about how you should spend the weekend, you know, it doesn't <laughs> automatically lead to a more innovative outcome. Um, and yet, I should probably say quickly <laughs> before your your listeners tune out. I mean, absolutely, I think. There's a repository of ideas within diverse groups that, that FAR expands upon if you just have like-minded individuals. But I, I was just kind of challenged by this notion as I moved into this arena of, wait, 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 it's not quite that simple. It's not that diversity just automatically leads to innovation.
1: <laughs> right, right. And, and you know, it's funny because as, as you interjected about your wife, I'm thinking my husband and I are trying to buy a house right now and, like, trying <laughs> to decide – what we're going to do, he happens to be six years older than I am. So he is, and he grew up in California, right? Mm. I grew up in the Midwest, and I'm from a different generation than he is. Mm. And and so generational differences, cultural right. differences. Um,
0: well, and maybe yeah. we should talk about that a moment, because you, you appropriately said, whoa, diversity, now that evokes a whole different kind of, thinking and priming and what are we talking about as compared to just cultural differences. Right. And I I think I don't want to read too much into what you said with that, but I think that's that's part of what I've experienced very much too. First of all, that term's become so broad that on the one hand, you know, if I wear a blue jacket and you wear a brown one, I'm like, ah, see we've got diversity. It's like, okay, that that's probably going <laughs> a bit too far. But I, I welcome the thought that this goes beyond just african-american versus caucasian or german versus korean so we we kind of looked at the research that gave birth to this book we wanted to look at when you actually have visible diversity when someone steps onto the team and you go okay i know that individual is different from the vast majority of others here Um, or as, as to you pointed out very real value differences that might stem from one's Either religious background or generational background, et etc right. you know how does that play into this whole thing
1: exactly, and you know i I'm reminded of that commercial that it plays quite frequently now, and I'm trying to remember, and they would be upset that I don't know this, but it's a technology <laughs> company, probably a cell phone, uh, you know, a smartphone company, that has the guy, the, uh, the piano master, who's playing on one keyboard, and he plays mm. this gorgeous piece of music,
0: and then right. he turns
1: around with a piano that's been re yep. all with one string right and he's it's kind of you know very similar to the cover of your book of you know all of the diversity produces this beautiful music but it it mm. also reminds me he's the master right he he right. is a master pianist and just because you have diversity right somebody else who has never sat at that piano would not make beautiful music very from well what's there
0: it just yeah. automatically yeah. happens yeah. Right. No, so true.
1: leading with cultural intelligence one of your previous books you know kind of tells you how you become the master right to make the beautiful music with all of the different things that you're dealt right because when with you are in a leadership is our role,
0: new marketing person cuz you have
1: said
0: it beautifully and simply and that that is precisely where cultural intelligence moves the next step beyond unconscious bias training or cultural awareness right, training, right. Like, of course where awareness is the first step. I need to know that this piano can play uh, a masterful piece and just the same note, but do I actually know how to get to that? And cultural intelligence is just as you know, it's the skills to actually make use of the diversity to come up with a better outcome.
1: Right, and you know, it's funny because I was talking to an old friend of mine who uh, used to be my boss when, when I worked for Sabre, and uh, he was he's working for a consulting firm in Canada right now, and he has taken up the saxophone. Mm. And he is uh, loving immersing himself in jazz, but has had this epiphany that jazz and strategic consulting actually have a lot to do with one another. So I think the whole musical thing is is an important one because when you are listening to beautiful music um you, I think you are more innovative and you're you're put in this mindset so if everything is working really well amongst the team and there is harmony right uh both both uh you know real and mm-hmm. and perceived um then then that team can be more more innovative mm-hmm. I think so yeah it seems to me that that's what your introduction to the book is all about—is talking about diversity in the 21st century workplace. We 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 have it whether we like it or not, or whether we try to craft diversity in a team.
0: Yep, yeah. yeah, And the other direction that I was thinking—and don't know if you intended this at all when you said that diversity evokes something different—is is I've also found by entering this this a bit different arena is that there is what I call in the the first chapters a lot of diversity fatigue in the workplace and
1: so oh yeah, yeah, and you're that. right, i mean both both racial and and otherwise um, right. one of the things i've spent a lot of time on in the last eight years because, as I mentioned to you before, we started the show, this show used to be um, the show that was geared at the executive girlfriends group, and we have looked at the fact that executive teams in particular, and boards specifically that have more women on them, those companies are more profitable. So I would be interested in the dimension of your research that uh, shows whether the companies that are more diverse are more profitable than those that Mm. are not. Mm. Do you you track that?
0: Yes, um, we absolutely do. And uh, I mean, not broadly that we've looked at all Fortune 500s and that, but right. that that really is the research that gave birth to this book, and it's it's just kind of putting numbers and research findings around the things that you've seen through the School of Hard Knocks and have described mm-hmm. in our brief conversation here. And essentially, to make it simple, it was we found that the reverse could be true if you aren't careful. We found that. Homogeneous teams, like-minded teams, all male teams, or all Caucasian teams, were outperforming diverse teams when cultural intelligence levels were low. But when cultural intelligence were high, the very finding that you were asking about was absolutely true. That now the diverse teams were way outperforming the <laughs> homogeneous teams on several metrics.
1: Right. Well, that gets back to my point about the the pianist.
0: It, it does, right. Exactly. If you're if
1: you're a bad pianist, right. nothing's going to sound good. Right. So what you're saying is that the makeup of the team maybe doesn't have anything to do with it. It's really the the cultural intelligence awareness.
0: And and I would say it's Both. The the makeup of the team are absolutely the ingredients for Mm -hmm. the innovation. It's just that that's not far enough. So I think to the point you were making a couple minutes ago, you see some organizations that work so hard to let's make sure the website reflects these different cultures. Let's make sure the team has equal men and women. And absolutely, but if that's all, then it's back to your piano metaphor. So, yeah.
1: So you've broken the book into essentially two parts. And and the first one really is analyzing the climate that makes cultural intelligence work and Mm -hmm. that that puts this link to innovation. And then the second part of the book, um, you talk about a model that you have created, this 5D process for culturally intelligent innovation. So let's start – uh, with the first part the the climate and uh you know the pieces of your research that have have uh helped you map this out, so you start first by talking about the power of attention. Tell me what yeah. you mean by that
0: yeah so in in part, this will sound extremely oversimplified, I would guess to many of your listeners, but part of it is if you 're not paying attention to diversity or if you're not paying attention to innovation it's unlikely that you'll be very diverse or at least leverage that diversity to drive innovation. <laughs> right. So you, you you might recall that the beginning of that chapter just references that experience that probably all of us have had, that you buy a silver Honda and then you start seeing silver Hondas everywhere. Yeah. And you're like, wait, was there a sale that I didn't hear about? And it's <laughs> not really that there's any more Hondas on the road. It's just I wasn't paying attention to it. So right. part of it is just consciously helping individuals to pay attention to that. And perhaps where this overlaps with some of the consulting work that you do, Chickie, is where it then links with organizational culture and organizational transformation. And to say that if the organization itself is not saying that innovation is a key part of what we're trying to do here, then it's not surprising that individuals aren't necessarily thinking in innovative ways because they aren't being primed for it.
1: Right, right. And and you say here at the end of the chapter, your mind is the most powerful asset that you have for innovation. And by consciously paying attention to innovation and the diverse perspectives around you, you're primed to come up with more innovative solutions. Not automatic, but you're still prime, primed right. and ready.
0: Yep, exactly. Yeah, and that that leads to the next piece that we talk about that flows right out of that is perspective taking, which should be fairly close to what a lot of people who read up on innovation think of as empathy with some slight nuance. But if I'm going to innovate, then I have to be able to effectively take on the perspective of the user for whom I'm hoping to innovate. And where this links back to diversity is the more diverse my team, the more that I have a built-in opportunity to do perspective-taking with others. So I I used that example at the beginning of the chapter of Jeff Bezos from Amazon's Empty Chair Strategy, where he says at their most important leadership strategy meetings, he wants an empty chair to represent the customer. And the thing that we've suggested to them at times is, that's an excellent strategy. I love it. It's one I've employed in our own team at the Cultural Intelligence Center, but let's just make sure I don't presume that the person sitting in the chair wants exactly what I want, um, and that's where...
1: Well, know, or that is. it is just one person, and, hey, and I yep, think that that's the other thing. I did uh, some, some strategy work for AARP uh, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and, and they actually had you know probably eight personas that uh, made up the the bulk of the AARP membership, and then they had to introduce the other um, the other aspect, which were the people who were coming up on fifty, mm-hmm. who they wanted to attract to membership, and not have it feel like a penalty that you get an AARP member membership card. In <laughs> and actually, it's so funny because when I worked there, they wouldn't let you call it ARP, and now I notice that they call it ARP on their own. Oh, commercial. is that right? Right, so the people coming up must have decided that that's what they wanted to call it. Um, <laughs> well, and I, But, yeah. I was going uh, to say, I confess, whole, I have
0: mm-hmm. been with many friends who have been like, no, I just got my <laughs> – so, I don't know, maybe they didn't succeed, but uh... – <laughs>
1: Well, you know, it's it's been interesting after having been inside for, you know, I probably consulted there uh, over the course of about 18 months. And, um, you know, then to watch what's happened, it's been, you know, a good five or six years since I was uh, consulting for them. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, uh, again, a single empty chair usually doesn't do it. And I'm in the midst of launching a new technology company, and, you know, my my board will say you know will tell us about your customer and I, and I think wow you know the customer for my product is as wide and varied as sure. it is possible to be because everybody travels and I've got a new technology that's you know a new way for them uh, to arrange their travel so um, but I love this issue of perspective taking and I have to admit when I first saw the power of the empty chair before I saw what was behind that I thought about a – it was a leadership program that that I uh, looked at for a while that looked at all the different perspectives that you have to have on a leadership team, right? And from the inventor to the the person who – you know then becomes the the innovator and then the happen. person who yeah mm-hmm. the person who actually executes and then all the way around the the spoke until you get back to the disruptor right who has to say look this is what's going on outside and we've got to change again mm-hmm. right and and what that methodology said was even if your team is all on one side let's say of the risk equation so you've got all risk takers mm-hmm. you've got to have an empty chair for the person you know for the perspective of the person who doesn't want to take a risk
0: yeah absolutely and yeah. i mean again you've you've put additional language in another model around the similar idea of what we're trying to present of you can frame diversity in a lot of different ways in including what you just described, you know, you need risk takers and non-risk mm-hmm. takers. Um,
1: exactly. Yeah. And that, boy, and that's trainers. a huge cultural difference, by the way.
0: It, it, it is. <laughs> right. And I, I think, you know, I was reminded too when you mentioned the, you can't just think of one customer. This is one of the things we often get at just more broadly in the cultural intelligence work where we're kind of bucking against what has been the status quo and cross-cultural training for about 50 years, where we so describe Here's the nature of the Germans. Here's the nature of the Chinese. What well, which Chinese? You know. And now right. we've kind of picked up on that. And here's the millennials. And you know, I talk to a lot of millennials that are like, not me. Like who who are you? And you know, I I talk out of both sides of my mouth on that because I I think there is some value in those large understandings of tendencies and norms. You know, for your daughter right. to have some understanding that. The norm in Poland is likely to be this way on time as compared to if I were going to, you know, Germany. Um right. But, you know, to your point, how do I take on the perspective of the individual with whom I'm sitting at at that point and not just assume oh, because you're this way, that means you're averse to risk or whatever it
1: right. and Right. And I've been a huge proponent in my own industry, actually, of understanding that even the single customer that you do isolate is actually about eight different customers, <laughs> particularly in travel, because you behave one way when you're traveling on business if sure. it's your own dollar. You behave yeah. another way when you travel on business and you're going to a training program, or still another when you go and travel – and you are uh, on a sales trip where there's potential revenue, and you might be willing to take a nonstop and take the last first-class seat if you're going to close a million-dollar deal, but you'd never do that if you were you know, paying for the trip yourself right. or if you were just going to a training program. right? And then you're also different if you travel with your wife or with your teenage kids or you bring along the grandma and the dog. And, and so even even the – the individual consumer of our products and services isn't the same. So moving on, I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: Well, I just had a question for you. I mean, I would guess, does that also play into with the disruptors of the Airbnbs of the world? I mean, I would guess it depends on the purpose of your travel, whether or not you're likely to stay at Airbnb versus the Marriott. Is that
1: well, absolutely, but I, you know, I can tell you that if if they can realize that there is a market for them to reach the business traveler, who wants to go to New York and maybe doesn't want to pay four hundred and fifty dollars a night for the Marriott when they can get, you know, a, a two bedroom apartment with a kitchen, stay with their colleagues, mm-hmm. you know, have a confab at night, you know, sitting around with a glass of wine versus, you know, and buying, you know, food so that they can cook. I mean, it's a whole different business culture that emerges out of that. And I would tend to say even is more innovative in and of itself because of the use of Airbnb, Mm -mm. right? Think about the behavior on a business trip when everybody goes back to their hotel room or you go to a restaurant and you're limited to, you know, I don't know, 90 minutes that you can sit at the table before you feel pressure to move on. Um but how much more innovative you can be if everybody actually collaborates in cooking and, you know, and sitting around talking afterwards and even cleaning up. Um and, so you know, it um, it's really funny the relationship between business and travel and uh, again, I've spent my whole my whole career on that front.
0: Hmm. Well, and I was going to say, in, in from our world that we work in, that the I find when I stay and rent local flats like that, as compared to the hotel, I just also get to engage in the culture in a different way. Cause Absolutely. I, I can be in the Marriott in Berlin, and I might as well be in Chicago. But
1: you know, <laughs> then suddenly
0: story. stay in a condominium, and like, whoa, okay, I'm walking by people from all over. So
1: yes, exactly. Now, uh the next chapter in the book talks about focus. And I mean th- this is the one that I perhaps have the biggest problem with because as you say, distraction and multitasking are enemies of creativity. And and getting discipline to focus, you know, when there are so many potential distractions in our right. lives. Um, how do you how do you get past that, and and how do you get a particularly teams that are all at different stages of life and and different things going on outside of work and and you know kind of pressing in on how they behave at work, so how how does that focus get harnessed?
0: Yeah, well, I should should qualify this before I jump into answering that by saying you know your listeners may at this point hear some of these things and go how would this be different for any team? Why does it have to be a diverse team? And in many regards, I'd say that's true. Any team that's not paying attention to innovation, any team that's not doing perspective taking is going to flounder innovation, any team that's not focused. And the reason that um, we felt like there was the need for some additional research on this is say that all these become exponentially more challenging the more diversity you have. So with focus, it's now not only do I have all the distractions that you and I have day in and day out from the pings of emails and trying to attend to our kids and family members, et cetera. But I also have, well, I have to jump on a phone call tonight at 12 o'clock because of time zone differences. Or I'm right. sitting in a meeting and I'm dealing with a behavior that appears to me to be really rude, but maybe it's not rude. Maybe that's cultural. Maybe that's what they – so I, I think part of it yep. is at the risk of oversimplifying, you know, stepping back to – take control of our schedule and even on a diverse team to create some um, formalized patterns that say we don't contact each other after these hours, we move around the um, difficult times to be calling in and doing the global call, those kinds of things. Um, and then I would say beyond that, it's the kind of things that you and I are probably reading every week in Fast Company or Inc., et cetera, on Turn off the ping of your email. You know, shut it down for a while. Th- those basic strategies we keep being told will help right. us focus. Um, can be can be useful. One one more concrete suggestion that the book also talks about is particularly if we're engaging on a. You know innovative project requiring some creativity, pretty much the research shows that we can go about ninety minutes at that now so, sometimes when I say to people that like ninety minutes like if I can stay focused for nine minutes, I'm lucky <laughs> but yeah, I'm saying no you know kidding. if <laughs> if we're doing an off site and you have a whole team together, you know this whole thing of like we're going to start at eight in the morning, we're going to go till ten o'clock at night and we'll do a working lunch, and like no, the brain can't function that way, so Sure, go at it hard, particularly in the morning for a 90 minute, then take a true break and tell everyone they're not allowed to go on email. I mean, I realize people are probably listening to this and going, "Yeah, right, myself included, but at least to set the ideals there, you know those, those are a couple of the things that I might suggest people think about in terms of how do you focus specifically when you add the additional layer of distraction from different cultures.
1: Right, right. So you move on to talk about uh, space and taking control of your space to give the right climate for innovation to to thrive, and the, and that the whole notion of your surroundings impacting, um, you know, how you work with diverse mm-hmm. colleagues. And you know, I mean, I I watch way too much TV. By the way, I I hadn't hadn't admitted that ever previously on this radio <laughs> show, but today I will tell our listeners. I do and I think about uh watching NCIS and when the the latest of the um recruits came on board uh she had this habit of sitting on the floor and working and that's how she was the most creative and of course her boss Gibbs who's you know the the hardcore uh marine um you know and and he just has very specific ways he likes to work he just could not handle that she had to sit on the floor. Now, occasionally he realizes he needs to just let her do that when she's working through a particularly difficult problem. But... You know, you mentioned being in a meeting with someone and and thinking that they were behaving rudely, and hmm. and uh, you know realizing that maybe that is cultural. So, how does the space around us really impact us, and how do we bring people onto the same plane, literally and figuratively, yeah. when we're dealing with diverse uh, backgrounds uh, and cultural backgrounds?
0: Yeah, you know, this was particularly interesting for me to look at because particularly so many corporate. Uh, office spaces are trying to replicate the Google work environment mm-hmm. or as more and more are you know going to the hoteling type of approach. It was kind of to think through, okay, is that what works best for everybody? Is it biased toward a particular type of individual? as you know, Susan Kane talks about that book and her the power of quiet. What's it look like for an introvert to be working in just an open office environment? What we've found in drawing from some others research is the four aspects of space that are universal for everyone regardless of personality and culture is some exposure to nature, even if that means looking out the window at a tree or going for a brief walk at lunch, um, natural light, um, you know, minimization of noise and how much the noise distracts you is something that's a the different. And then uh, the last one is temperature you know like basic temperature that isn't too extreme either direction but Hmm. where there's then high variability are the very things that you just noted you know someone who might want to sit on the floor and somebody who prefers to have their earbuds in somebody who's like let me go work in the cafe or at starbucks for a while and somebody else is like oh dear god give me the quietest library i can find so i think it's allowing room for that
1: Right. diverse
0: perspective again of letting people work from the space that works best for them but you know on the other hand saying that there's something that happens when we're all together so i mean
1: <laughs> exactly well i'm i'm reminded of of one of my first uh, joint venture negotiations i worked for uh worldspan which was owned by delta northwest and twa at the time and we were negotiating to merge uh with a company that was based in nice France. Uh, they also had. Uh, they were owned by three different airlines that were in three different countries. So they had, uh, I don't know, eighty or ninety uh, different cultures represented in their company. It was called Amadeus, and but because they were in Nice, um, you know, we would have these two-hour lunch meetings. We had free-flowing wine right. right at lunch, and like our team was like, "Holy cow!" You know, first of all, we're still getting over the jet lag. And then, you know, of course, we don't want to be rude and not drink with lunch, right? And but, but we weren't used to it. Like our bodies just physically exactly. weren't used to it. So we had to pace ourselves. So that that's my kind of space and time that's uh, from from the cultural. Um, we need to move or, uh, move on a little bit, and I'm, I'm just having so much fun with this because I love this topic. But the next one uh, and, and the last part of the first section of the book is about the power of trust, Yeah. and uh, I've got to believe that this is probably the hardest of, yep. of all of the things that we've talked about. I
0: took so the words far. out of my mouth. I, I think it is, and... As you know well, given all your life as an entrepreneur and the work that you do, you know the ability to let people fail is so key to effective innovation. And yet, failure sometimes erodes trusts or people respond to it differently. So, just briefly, because I I know we're running short on time and have some other things to interact about, but I, I think it's it's bearing in mind that what what builds my trust may not necessarily build your trust and especially if i'm working with a diverse team primarily in a virtual environment so at the risk of oversimplifying and now stereotyping in ways that i said aren't always helpful you know for me as a westerner a north american if we're in a working relationship the primary way that you're going to earn trust with me is you follow through you do what you say you're going to do and you know if we chit chat about why your mom called you chicky and stuff like that, that's nice. That's, that's helpful. And I feel like, okay, this is a decent human being, but ultimately if we have to deliver a project together, even if you're very cold to me at the beginning of our call, I might be like, well, that's all right. She's all about tasks. Whereas, you know, for somebody from a very different culture, if we didn't do any of that small talk or chit chat at the beginning, it could have the direct opposite. I I don't care if you're going to follow through. Are, are you a human being that has any soul to you? And <laughs> yeah. So those are the kinds of things that I'm suggesting can derail um, teams from even thinking about how they align together, because I'm not sure I trust you um, because of these kinds of behaviors.
1: Right, right. Very interesting. So, you know, once our, our listeners have, have mastered all of these things that we've just talked about, so mm-hmm. uh, You know, going back and and looking at paying attention to what's going on around us, you know, taking in other people's perspective and thinking about who's not in the room, uh, getting focused about what we're doing, creating the right space and environment, and, and actually taking the time to do those things that are necessary to build trust. So then it's time to actually get busy and to manage the process of innovation and and being culturally intelligent about that innovation. So you've uh, crafted this process that you call the 5D process. So talk to us about the first D in the 5D process.
0: Yeah, well, and I'll I'll just briefly frame these five steps to say these are – going to sound very similar to the kinds of things you would see out of the d school at stanford or clayton christensen's work on innovation there's a reason why those who research innovation pretty much find that similar steps have to be moved through but what we wanted to look at once again is specifically how do these steps have to be adjusted? What are the skills that are needed when you bring a diverse team around it? So the first mm-hmm. D would be case in point. It. The first D is simply define, define what it is that right. you're trying to address. What's the problem? And, again, you bring any team together, and hopefully if you have a good team leader, they would stop to say, what's the objective? What we find is that definition becomes all the more important, the more that there's cultural differences around the table or on the team because we might think we all meant the same thing. And I'll just briefly share an example. I, I mentioned in the book that we were working with a Fortune 50 company on a leadership development program, and they had just identified that one of their core leadership capabilities that they wanted to focus on over the next year was getting their leaders to act like an owner. Okay, given the nature of your game changing (laughs) audience that you have and your own entrepreneurial interests, I mean, you and I probably immediately resonate with, yeah act like an owner, have them them actually do their business travel in a way that they spend as if it was their own money and take risks or not take you know, yada, yada, yada. So I think that's pretty much what was meant by it. So I was a part of a meeting where they were coming together to say, let's roll out what our leadership development program this next year will look like that's focused on getting people to act like an owner. I wasn't facilitating the meeting. Somebody else was. He does this very thing, defines up front, hey, we're here today. Develop a leadership program around act like an owner have a nice conversation the first coffee break a couple individuals from thailand pull me aside and they say um perhaps you could help our facilitator understand that owners in our context are perceived to be drunk guys playing golf all day who don't have a clue what's going on in the business and you know first of all I'm not saying at all that's necessarily true of all owners in Thailand or that's the perception. But for them,
1: they No, saying, but that is so right? funny. Like yeah, how no, are see, we going to go? Frame it, I would frame it slightly different because I talk about that same topic in mm. in a program that I do called injecting entrepreneurial energy. Mm right and and it does talk about what would happen if you were the owner but i i can see why that just jumped out at them that they had a different perspective
0: yeah that. and that I, word to, had a
1: different meaning
0: exactly and to everyone's credit it wasn't that they were clueless of what was trying to be accomplished and it wasn't right. like the company itself was like oh never thought but they were just they were sitting there distracted the whole time because even the definition in their mind was not really clear what it you know and i think what you said right. if it had been teased out more into we're trying to get them to think and behave as entrepreneurs oh okay now next step so
1: anyway right, that's the right.
0: definition piece and you know the book kind of lays out just some practical ways of how mm-hmm. might you get people to define carefully what it is they expect the goal to be about
1: Right, and and the next one is dream, and and you know it's so funny because um, I'm thinking about this book in the context. Uh, I'm right in the middle of interviewing uh, offshore development companies, and I've done this before, and I've gotten burned, and you know, uh, part of it's cultural, but part of it is some cultures don't permit; they don't give their people permission to dream. They are, are given steps and they execute against those steps and so they're all about doing and not about dreaming. Mm. Uh so you're talking here about how do you generate ideas yeah. from a diverse team. And I imagine some cultures or even in a room full of uh, you know, seasoned business professionals that maybe are older, probably are older, and, and young people who maybe don't feel like they have anything to offer. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, one of the concrete ways we get at this in the book is let's just think about a brainstorming session. And so those of us who have been socialized in classrooms growing up at school or in our homes of, hey, offer offer a unique idea. It doesn't matter how wild and off the wall it is. Just say it. It might spark something else as compared to individuals who have been brought up in classrooms, like you just said, here's step one, here's step two, or, you know, don't speak up unless asked to do so. So it's predisposed. Many times the ways that we even get people to offer their ideas to us are predisposed toward a particular cultural group. And so that's all we're after is kind of taking an intentional strategy of how are you going to draw ideas out from individuals who maybe haven't been brought up in cultures where that's right. as prioritized or or at least go about it in a, a way that's different.
1: Right. You know, I think the next one perhaps is one of the most interesting to me because some organizations are really good at that dreaming and brainstorming uh piece. Yep. But they never, ever can get to a decision. <laughs> right. And and so the next one is selecting and selling the idea and like getting everybody on board. Um and in again, in some cultures, the person who makes that decision is the boss. Yep. And they would never ever dream about a worker on the team actually having a voice right. in that decision. So is that what you're implying it here? Is.
0: Yeah, it's very much you know, and it, it kinda relates back to from the first part of the book, the perspective-taking idea, back to your point of who are the customers who sit in the empty chairs, so how do I decide based upon what I know about the customer and how do I make more explicit what the decision-making process will be rather than just assuming that everyone knows that, no, actually this won't be a boss-made decision or, you know, it'll be consensus.
1: Right. Yeah, the the next
0: one, design, um, is the fourth step in the process. And it gets more specifically into how does culture even influence one's preferences for how they want an object to be designed. So, you know, everything from color schemes to layouts of a website to, you know, the actual functionality of something. Um, so this kind of dovetails into the piece on innovation that's often talked about, design, 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 but design is often predisposed toward a sort of Western eye for something. And it's saying as more and more markets and opportunities are being found in more emerging markets, are we designing in a way that makes sure we understand what that customer actually needs?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and there's a a really interesting organization um, called UserTesting.com mm-hmm. that for a software developer that doesn't have the money for a huge you know quality assurance testing team inside, um, you can actually put your product out your you know if you've got a minimum viable product you can put it out to be tested. By different age groups, by people mm. in different countries, by people on different platforms, That's great. and you know you essentially pay by the by the individual right by the number of encounters that you have, but the neat thing about it is that the person who is looking at your product is actually recording their session both mm-hmm. visually and, mm-hmm. and the um, the audible. Side of things. Mm. And so you're hearing their reaction as they're trying to navigate through what you have brilliantly designed for whoever you think your audience is. Right. And when we were designing our original product, we knew that it was going to be used. We were actually trip enabling the obituary, right, for a funeral home. Mm. So that if you knew that you know uncle harry had died and and you know you wanted to go to the funeral this allowed you to find a hotel near the funeral <laughs> and it was just unbelievable to me because i had been immersed in it for so long to hear how people behaved and it it just it, it just made made me laugh sometimes wow. because i didn't think things through for their particular situation i tried to be sensitive to the fact that they were you know sometimes in shock certainly grieving uh and that that was different than planning a vacation to disney right <laughs> So um, let's move on uh, since we we are coming to the top of the hour, and I want to be mindful of your time. Um, So the last one is deliver, and this is is all about the implementation phase. And, again, getting back to the decision-making, some companies are great at, like, figuring out what they want to do, but they've got so many competing priorities that they never actually get to the implementation phase. Yeah. And and so here you're talking about minimizing the conflict that can happen and maximizing the strength of the different team members. And you had mentioned something earlier about, you know, like the midnight conference calls. Right. And for my friends who do a lot of global business, and thankfully I don't do that much anymore um, because, uh, you know, I'm working on launching my own company. Um, but, but this is a, a really big thing about – you know how do the responsibilities get laid out and and right. who does what when and and which group is better to do this piece and that piece
0: yeah the good news is that the research found that the teams that have followed something akin to the 5D process leading up to this were much less likely to experience conflict in the fifth stage. So if, if you've carefully defined your objective, you've really worked together on generating ideas, deciding which one to do and design, then it follows that the delivery and the implementation, you've kind of already done the forming, storming, norming, if you will, on the team. Um, but I I think probably to, to just be more concise about it, of, of all the things that we find, if there are cultural differences in the way that we usually think about it, um, that to create challenges in the implementation. It is on timing and maybe not only on the conference call example, but timing in terms of what does a deadline mean? And you know, so some, right. some my friends in Mexico, uh, who are Mexican themselves, laugh about. Oh, when someone tells you like ahora, I'm I'm going to send this to you now. You can't assume that means now and sit and watch your inbox for the email to right. come in. That that might mean anytime in the next few days. And just having some more explicit conversation about. What is a deadline? Why was it created? Was this just an arbitrary you know uptight New Yorker? Is it a as suggestion? A business today <laughs> Yeah, exactly. so so it's those kinds of practical things that again, I would suggest are important for any team, but the more differences you have on the team in terms of cultural background, the more important it's going to be to to really articulate what that implementation right. process looks like.
1: Well, David, this has been just. Fascinating, and again, the book that we've been talking about is driven by difference. How great companies fuel innovation through diversity. And you know, it's funny when I originally saw it, I thought, "Oh, well, this is only for big companies, right? They're the ones who are dealing with diversity." And and uh, but but now I can see that even for the solopreneur like myself, who's building a new technology company, and I'm having to deal with you know uh, different kinds of developers all over the world. You know, I need this every bit as much as the person in the Fortune 500, Fortune 50 company who's trying to figure out how to deal, you know, with people in their various offices around. Uh, so, uh, again, I, I encourage folks to pick up this book if if you uh, fall into any of those categories or anything in between. David, how can folks reach you if, if they do want you to come and talk about this topic, uh, you know, to their company or to to an event that they're holding?
0: Thank you. Yeah, if you just visit us at culturalq.com or uh, my own website that has more info about the book at davidlivermore.com, you'll find contact information there, and we'd be delighted to interact with any of you about ways we could collaborate together on this topic.
1: Well, fabulous. And for those of you who'd like to learn more about the Game Changer Network, just go to thegamechanger.network. And you can listen to uh, the last couple of our radio shows uh, free and commercial free. And we would love for you to consider joining the network and uh, just join us again. We're here every Friday at, at noon, and the shows are syndicated out over a wide range of platforms. So thank you so much for listening to us, and we will see you next week.
0: You've been listening to The Game Changer, Ideas inspiration, innovation, with Chickie Fitzgerald.